Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. This is episode one, where we explain to you what CGSE and DMH are and what we do. And so with us here today are the director of the Department of Military History, Dr. Dave Cotter, and the deputy director of the Department of Military History, Dr. Mark Ergus. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good morning. And I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Abel, an assistant professor of military history here in DMH. Uh, So we want to start off by talking about kind of where we are and, and who we are and what we do. So we are located here at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, right on the Missouri River, the Kansas-Missouri border. So if you could tell us just briefly about why we are here in the physical location we are. Um, I'll go ahead and start. Um, uh, <clears throat> this is Dave Cotter. Um, the Command and General Staff College is located at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Um, and, and it enjoys a very long history uh, of time here at, at uh, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. It has its roots uh, in the School of Application of Infantry and, and Cavalry uh, it, from 1981 when, uh, when General Sherman actually founded that school here at Fort Riley. But 1882 <coughs> or 1881? I said 1881, didn't I? He said 19. 1881. 1881. 1881. <coughs> it is 1881, and um, uh, which is written right here, 1881. Um, <coughs> uh, the the school of application of infantry and cavalry, and what what uh, Sherman's intent was uh, was to take these officers, uh, mid grade officers, um, out of the direct level and into the to the higher levels of of, of command, staff, and operations, uh, and that today is is exactly what the Command and General Staff College continues to do. Um, our mission here is to is, is the, the critical mid-career uh, professional military education step uh, for field grade officers. Um, and our focus here is the conduct of operational level of war, uh, vice the tactical. And most of our students arrive here uh, fully competent in, in tactical operations. And, and, and our job is to lift them into the operational level of war. Okay, and and what is the what is the average student at CGSC like? What what, what experience do they have? Where are they coming from? Where are they headed? Uh, again, as I mentioned a moment ago, these are, these are uh, for all intents and purposes mid-career officers. They've they, most of them completed a decade of service at the company level. Uh, almost all of them have commanded a company, uh, battery or troop, uh, which is a, a, a milestone for a company grade officer. Uh, they served their early years as platoon leaders and, and perhaps uh, minor staff positions. Uh, at the battalion level. Uh, these are all learning positions, if you will. Uh, by the time they come here, they've been through four or five assignments, and they've actually cut their teeth. They've not only commanded, they've served on a staff. And many of them have served beyond uh, the, their, their initial uh, level of, of assignment at battalion, and perhaps gone to brigade or division, or done something more broadening, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, we have a number of officers that come here from the United States Military Academy at West Point after having served there as instructors. Okay, and so these the students we have by and large are captains with a good deal of experience or recently promoted majors? That's correct. Uh, yeah, this is Mark Ergus. They will come here 
as senior captains promotable and over the course of the year most of them will uh, be promoted to major and leave here as field grade officers. Okay, and, and could you use the term field grade officer and, and people who, are, who have been in the military or who know the military might know the difference between company grade and field grade, but could you elaborate on that just a little bit? Certainly. Uh, the company grade officers are our second lieutenants, our first lieutenants, and our captains. Uh, they're the first of the three levels of officership uh, in the United States military, uh, in the United States Army. And those officers serve at the company level for the most part. Uh, they do sometimes serve at the battalion level in minor, in, in, in lesser roles, not in significant leadership roles. Um, these uh, officers are operating at the direct level. They have um, direct control, generally, of the organizations they're in charge of, whether it's a detachment, a platoon, or, or a company. Um, what we, when we say field grade level officers, we're talking about officers that operate at the, at the organizational level. These are officers in the grades of major, lieutenant colonel, and colonel. Uh, majors are considered junior field grade officers, and lieutenant colonels and colonels more senior field grade officers. Um, and those officers operate um, at the higher level staffs, and of course they have additional responsibilities. Uh, and they, they are, are charged with more decision-making than the company grade officers are. And, and as I mentioned a few moments ago, we are the bridge here at the Commanding General Staff College between the company level and the field grade level for the, for the officers in the United States Army. And, and so for somebody more familiar maybe with a corporate hierarchy, we basically take a, a supervisor and train them for kind of a middle management role? Is that or, a good analogy? Or, or even executive service. Uh, the senior field grade officers are definitely operating at the executive level. Okay. Now in terms of who we are, could you explain where the Department of Military History fits into this uh, educational enterprise? What it is, how it works, and where it fits? Sure, and this could get a little complicated. Um, the, the, en the enterprise itself is, is uh, the Army University, which is the entire educational enterprise uh, in the United States Army, and that, in that comprises uh, basic training through the general officer courses uh, that they take uh, at, the, at the one star and then subsequently at the two star level. That entire enterprise is, is administered by the Army University. Uh, the Commanding General Staff College uh, is, the is an accredited piece of Army University, and it is comprised of, of four schools, uh, and, and the largest of those schools is the Command and General Staff School, and the Department of Military History is, a, is one of the five departments within the Command and General Staff School. Okay, and uh, could you give us a, uh, some brief information on who the faculty of the Department of Military History are, what, what we do, and where we come from? Certainly. Uh, the, the, the Department of Military History faculty is probably the most diverse in the building in terms of, of demographic background. Uh, we are a mix of civilian, um, military, and retired military people, uh, most of whom possess terminal degrees. Um, <clears throat> and the, de the department is, um, is, is widely experienced. Uh, we are all uh, uh, experts in different parts of military history, um, and this is the largest military history department, to our knowledge, in the United States. Um, it's a widely published faculty. It's a very talented faculty, um, and they, we bring um, a number of civilians into our faculty because they bring the latest uh, developments from, from academia into, into our schoolhouse, but we also rely heavily on our military and retired military folks to, uh, to make sure we keep that context 
in, in, within our course as part of our course. So this is a, an unusual setup, particularly for people who are familiar with kind of more traditional academic institutions. Uh, what do you think the department and the school gain from this union of uniformed, former uniformed, and pure civilian faculty? Well, our, our mission here is is uh, is not to produce historians. Our, our mission is to perform <coughs> is to uh, help officers inform their professional judgment uh, by adding a level of historical mindedness um, to their already existing and and continuing to develop branch competencies. Um, our our job really is to is to make the infantryman a more complete officer. Uh, and not just an infantryman. And we, we believe that the historical mindedness uh, adds to that. And the context that we provide here, the mixed context uh, provided by this faculty with their very diverse backgrounds, especially as compared to the rest of the faculty, uh, is what I think gives that, that historical mindedness a, a much more wider scope. Uh, that we can provide the officers so that when they go to the staffs that they're going to join later on, uh, they will in fact be, be more widely read and, and, and experienced uh, in terms of what they can offer their commander in terms of recommendations and, and support. One of the elephants in the room that, that often comes up with civilians at a school where, where students are in uniform is what does a civilian know that an officer needs? So how would you respond to that? Well, we have a, a very robust um, faculty development program here in the department. Actually, the school and the college has a very robust faculty development program. And, and here in the Department of Military History, we are very sensitive uh, to the fact that not all of us come from the same background. Um, and, and for instance, in our building, um, acronyms are, are tossed around freely uh, without further explanation. And, and we, we owe it to our faculty to help them understand that a little better. In the same way, we, we, have, we, we uh, enjoin our, our military and retired military faculty to minimize the use of acronyms so that everybody is part of the conversation. Um, we, we have different levels of success with that, uh, but, it, but at the end of the day, I, I believe, and, and we, have, we have shaped this department so that it is about 50% uh, people with military experience and 50% that, that came here without experience. And that has, um, in, in my opinion, enriched uh, the department in, in the way it can uh, communicate with the officers. And David, I, if I could add something about this, Mark Gerges, um Part of our, you know, our curriculum is looking at history and the theorist, and then how doctrines develop from that. And the civilian faculty know the history and are able to give the insights uh, to our students of how history has been used, um, you know, over the last couple centuries. And theorists have taken that and where our doctrine comes from. So then, when a new version of 3.0, uh, the operations manual comes out, they know that this thing just didn't come from, you know, uh, Mount Sinai. It was actually uh, developed by studying history, looking at how theorists are done. And so our civilian faculty, that's their expertise and that's what they bring to, to our students. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so well we have approximately 30 faculty across uh, currently three geographically distinct institutions. Uh, could you talk about the laydown of, of how that works a little bit? What we have is, um, well, the, the Command and General Staff School is, is uh, of which the DMH is a part, um, is, operates in three uh, educational domains. The first of this is a resident course. 
Uh, there are about 1,200 officers that, that move lock, stock, and barrel with their families here for, for, for about a year uh, to go through the course. Uh, we also have uh, satellite courses. Uh, the satellites um, uh, teach only the core course, and I'll explain the, the courses shortly, but they teach only the core course, and those, those courses, the satellites are designed uh, to accommodate those officers that are, uh, are more specialized. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, in terms of physicians, uh, attorneys, um, uh, contracting officers, dentists, uh, comptrollers, dentists, etc. Yeah, those are the kind of folks that go to the core course, which is the course that we kind of uh, categorize as what every major needs to know. Uh, and then, uh, and then they go off and do a specialized course that's that's specific to their to their uh, area of expertise. And then we have a distance course, and this is the largest course, uh, the largest of the uh, of the the CGSS courses, um, in which DMH is, is a participant. And they have a, we have a distance, uh, a, a driven distance course, which is uh, uh, <clears throat> not all asymmetric. It, it's sometimes it's it's. Uh, it's a real-time uh, course, and then there's a, a pure distance course uh, that is offered as well uh, in throughout the uh, the mostly the reserve components, Compo two and three, the National Guard and Reserve, uh, and those meet in various places across the United States, uh, and they uh, they accommodate the folks that that uh, that are in the Guard and Reserve, uh, but also have uh, full-time lives besides their military lives, and so they're they're tailored. Uh, to accommodate the needs of those officers as well. And if I could just say one thing about the students, we have 1,200 students uh, in a typical course here at, in resident Fort Leavenworth. Only about 900 of those are U.S. Army officers. Uh, we also have about 100 Air Force officers, uh, 30 Navy officers, uh, Marines, uh, 120 international officers from around the world. Um, and then various uh, uh, the civilian departments, uh, Department of State, uh, Border Patrol, FBI, and those ones mm -hmm. who are also here. So it is a joint uh, as well as an interagency uh, 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 flavor in many of the staff groups. So from from the perspective of kind of the, the uninformed listener, if this is an Army school, why does it have students from the FBI, from the Navy, from uh, partner nations like France or Germany? Well, the, the international uh, student uh, participation in the Commander General Staff College has been going on for over 100 years. Um, and those partnerships that are, that are built, those uh, lines of communication, if you will, those channels of communication, uh, have proven invaluable over the years. Um, and they operate at every, every uh, uh, staff college level, uh, Air Force, uh, Marines, Navy, and, and Army, and at every war college level. They, 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 the international students play a part of that. Similarly, U.S. officers attend a number of, of, of international military academies as well, and it, it's it's to build uh, communication. It's it's to be able to discuss with other you know with other nations. And and uh, uh, there are a number of anecdotes that we could relate about how this has played out in real time. Uh, you know, get, requesting permission for an overflight, and and Nation X says to the United States, "We deny permission for the overflight." But when, when General X calls his, his former classmate, you know, General Y in the other country, 
you know, they may not get the overflight permission, but they'll at least have the conversation about it. So these kind of relationships are very, very important. The other thing that we've noticed, uh, that, that we've uh, focused on in our Army, uh, in, in our military, the U.S. military, over the last uh, couple of decades is this whole-of-government approach, this idea that we should leverage all of the power of the U.S. government when we try to do something in another nation. Uh, whether it's war fighting or whether it's peacemaking or peacekeeping, um, we don't have all the experts in uniform. And so it's very important for us to have folks that understand international finance, folks that understand diplomacy, folks that understand law enforcement. And that's the reason we bring these other folks in, into, the, into the ranks. And of course, the sister services, I think, is self-explanatory. Uh, as much as we all wear uniforms, the uniforms are all different, and so too are the languages. Um, and I would take that even a step further. Um, the languages between Army branches can be radically different. Uh, things that make perfect sense to an armor officer who is who's operating, you know, a platoon or a company of tanks uh, may speak a very, very different language than perhaps the, uh, the, the officer that operates in an AH-64 uh, attack helicopter organization. So those are the kind of things that we try to do in here. And, and again, most of it, for many of the officers uh, that attend our course, this is the first time where they've been in a classroom with members of other services uh, and certainly members of, of, of other government agencies and, uh, and officers from other countries. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what it is that we do in the classroom. We have, uh, just kind of for a brief breakdown for the listeners, uh, we are divided as the faculty into teaching teams, and each teaching team has four staff groups with 15 to 16 officers. And they're, again, they're the range of these students, different branches, different services, sometimes um, civilian students as well. And, and we teach three major blocks of instruction. Within the department, we have a core curriculum and uh, what we call the Advanced Operations course or the AOC curriculum, and then we have electives. So we'll talk about each of these in turn. Uh, explain a little bit what the core curriculum is. What does it cover and what's its purpose? The, the, the core course uh, is it's a 13-lesson course. Uh, and what it and again, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the core course is what the Army believes every major needs to know. And so there's a tactics portion, there's a, a joint warfighting portion, and, and there's certainly a sustainment and force modernization uh, portion and a leadership portion in addition to the history. Which are the five schools or five departments within, within the, the school? school yes. yes. Um, and the core course in DMH uh, is focused on the rise of, of the Western way of war. And we basically uh, begin in, a, in the pre-Frederician area and carry it all the way through to the, to the first couple of years of World War II. And the idea there is we're trying to get the officers uh, a, a, a contextual uh, background so that they can learn how to apply uh, what, they've, what they've accumulated on their intellectual Rolodex uh, when, they, when they join a higher level staff. Uh, as we mentioned, as, as Mark mentioned a few minutes ago, we, we apply a theme in this, and the theme that we use, or the mechanism that we use in our Western Way of War course, is this concept of history, theory, doctrine, and practice. And our, our intent there is that this is a circular uh, model, not a linear model, but that that history begets the theory, which begets the 
the doctrine which which drives the practice and then we review how that worked uh, in World War One, for example we reviewed how that worked and tried to prepare for World War Two uh, but the whole idea is you look at the history and from that we develop the theory uh, <clears throat> and then move on and so we start with um, the, the you know the pre-Frederician area we talk about Frederick uh, we spend a couple of lessons on Napoleon uh, which is very important because it talks about many of the, the developmental constructs that are extant in today's formations to include core structures for example um, and and uh, and then we try, we take that forward then we start to talk about the theoretical piece a little bit we spend a lesson on uh, Clausewitz and a lesson on uh, Germany and we try to, to and we indicate to the officers uh, where they can find uh, elements of both of those theorists in our doctrine even today um, <clears throat> and then we carry this forward we 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 roll into the industrial era uh, the U.S. Civil War, uh, and then we talk about the development of a, of a general staff. Uh, we do talk about um, uh, sea power quite a bit in the core course because, again, it's it's uh, basically uh, uh, 18th, 19th, and, and 20th century, and so sea power is a, a large part of that. And we do teach joint warfighting here at the school, so it's important to touch on that. Uh, but we could also talk to about, uh, <clears throat> we also use that course to, to discuss what we thought uh, the requirement was for our naval forces and what what it may have turned into later and we make the officers uh, examine that in some detail as well and then we spend two lessons on on World War one uh, and one is the is the uh, obviously the first half of the war uh, which was the the grand stalemate which we, we entitled the collision of revolutions uh, and then <clears throat> and then the second half uh, is the actual developments uh, uh, that the, the, the different uh, contesting forces developed to try to get out of World War One, and, and we call that the birth of combined arms. And then we, we, we talk about uh, the development uh, in the interwar period, what we thought we needed for, for the interwar period, and then and what turned out. And one of the things we get into is the great debate about how tanks should be employed, for example. Should tanks be employed as pure fleeted organizations, or th should they be employed as combined arms organizations? Uh, and then we talk about the limits of Blitzkrieg, and we, we, we discuss uh, the invasion of Poland in 1939, uh, the, in, you know, the, the, the battle for France in 1940, and then uh, many of us try to also fit in Barbarossa uh, to talk about the real limits of, of Blitzkrieg. Um, and the whole intent of this course, and it's a lot of material over a lot of time, is to prepare the officers for the second half of the course, which is focused uh, on large-scale combat operations. Okay. And the uh, AOC course, the second of the three blocks of instructions that uh, of instruction that we have, how is that different? Well, as the first part of the course, the core course was focused on the Western way of war. The second half of the course is focused on the American way of war, but it's focused at the operational level of war. Um, and we modeled this after um, the new uh, doctrinal field manual, uh, field manual. 3-0, FM 3-0, um, and we talk about it in terms of uh, mobilization. Uh, we, we talk about what, what different armies have to do to mobilize, and, and this, is not, this is not exciting stuff, but okay. it's stuff that, that, that officers have. This is the sausage making that folks have to understand to be operational warfighters. This is not what movies get made about, but it's very important. It, it's, okay. it is critical, um, and, and actually the officers uh, warm right up to this very quickly. And then we talk about the actual deployment and, and the, the JR 
SONI process, the joint reception, staging, onward movement, integration process. This is when you turn units from cargo into combat-capable organizations. Um, and, and we use a number of historical examples uh, to, to talk about that. We also talk about the tyranny of distance here. Uh, we, we discuss Guadalcanal in depth and, and, and just the challenges of, of thousands of miles of ocean, et cetera. Right. Overlord as well. And it's another great example. <clears throat> um, and then we talk about the, uh, then we build another se series of lessons against the defense. Um, you know, the concept of defense and, and, you know, Clausewitz calls the stronger form of war, but it's nothing but preparation to go on the offense. Um, and then we, we have a number of lessons that prepare for the, for the offense, and we also you know, to deal with the offense. And then we try to, uh, to keep those, uh, we try to, to, to also include a little bit of consolidating gains at the end of that. Uh, and we have, we, have, we have tried mightily to do this in a chronological sequence. And, and the, the luxury for us is that the, the historical examples of all of these things abound. Mm -hmm. So we have been able to keep a chrono chronological uh, sequence, which, which the officers truly appreciate. If I could add about that, for, for H-400, for the AOC, we explored whether there is an American way of war. We spent the, the, the core H-100 looking at uh, this idea of a Western way of war and really challenging that and what that means. And then the question is, is there an American way of war that's developed since World War II? And then also the responses against it, what are the challenges? And so we look at uh, the Chinese way of war with Mao uh, and Sun Tzu. Uh, we look at lessons on Vietnam, on the responses uh, there. Um, later lessons look at the uh, Russian New Generation Warfare and the Chinese, uh, the rise of the Chinese as we get to the end of the class. And it's really to look at and have the students kind of examine themselves. Is there a particular way of war for America and how does that force responses from uh, potential opponents? Okay. And there's a, um, an interesting uh, phenomenon that's emerged in the last few years and that is uh, when we when we talk about uh, Vietnam as hybrid warfare, uh, where there's uh, many periods of, of relative inactivity, you know, interrupted by periods of, of, in, of significant combat, uh, and many of our officers have been able to to see the parallels between Afghanistan and Iraq and Vietnam. So these are important things. We do focus on large-scale combat operations, but not to the exclusion of everything else. Mm -hmm. And newer conflicts like the one in uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia as well. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So this is what we've just described, the first two of the three blocks of instruction every DMH instructor does in some form, with the exception of some who only teach the core. The third block is a little different, and that's our electives block. So could you briefly describe kind of how our electives program works? The, the elective program in the Department of Military History is, um, uh, uh, well, to be frank, it's what we live for. Um, because it, 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 is, it is our opportunity to offer courses um, in, in the areas in which we are, have a particular interest. Um, as I mentioned earlier, every member of the faculty is a military historian. Uh, but we all focus on different parts of military history, and so this is our opportunity uh, to offer these electives, uh, and, and the officers are, are generally very hungry to take these electives. 
Um, we offer um, uh, electives on the Crusades, which are generally sold out. They, they, they fill every seat. Uh, we offer uh, electives on the Napoleonic era. We offer uh, electives, n numerous electives on World Wars One and Two, uh, on the Civil War, uh, but also on other things. We have a, we have a, a member of our faculty every year that offers a very well subscribed uh, course on war crimes. Uh, we offer a course on gender integration in, in the in the in the military in general, in the U.S. Army in particular. Um, and we also offer a, a two courses that are required uh, for those officers who are selected to attend the School of Advanced Military Studies. Um, we offer a, a course on military theorists uh, and a course on great campaigns. Um, we do this in coordination with the, with the School of Advanced Military Studies, SAMS. Uh, we make sure that the, that the campaigns we're offering are, are the ones that, that can best uh, suit their requirements and needs. Um, and, and with the theorist, uh, there's generally very little discussion about the theorist. We can all agree on the theorist. <laughs> uh, but every, uh, every one of the 120 or so officers that go to SAMS take those, those courses, and every member of our faculty uh, is able to teach uh, the, one, of those, one, of, one or both of those courses, uh, and, we, and we all participate in that as required. Okay. So that's more or less what we teach over a given year. Now let's zoom out a little bit. Our, our listeners are probably familiar with, of course, you know, the president is the commander in chief, the Department of Defense, uh, maybe the idea of the, the, the joint chiefs where you have a chief and then service chiefs. Um, but where does DMH, where does CGSC fit within kind of the big army structure? Well, I think I've already mentioned that CGSC is the, is the, um, it is the absolute critical professional military education uh, milestone that an officer must achieve for promotion. Mm -hmm. um, without becoming uh, what we call a, a military education level four, a MEL four officer, uh, promotion to lieutenant colonel is essentially a um, moot point. It's not going to happen. Um, and so this, that's why this is critical. What we do um, here at the school respond to are the forces from the field. Um, and so um, we, there, there's many times where we have to modify our curriculum uh, to requirements from the field. This is, after all, the United States Army Command and General Staff College. Um, an example of that is what we're doing right now. As the U.S. military in general uh, shifts focus to the Indo-PACOM region, um, so too is the school as we try to focus more heavily on the Pacific region. Uh, and, and the Indo-PACOM area. Uh, an example of that is um, a couple of years ago we used to use um, the, bottle, the Battle of Saint-Vith as a great example of talking about JRSONI and, and, and movement within the battlefield and division level movements. We have shifted that now to the Battle of the Philippines uh, to give uh, our officers a better understanding of that region. Uh, that's just one example. Um, we, we, we are, um, th there are frequent changes that happen based on the climate uh, and requirements that come down from the Department of the Army and the Department of Defense. And, and we respond to those as best we can. Just and if I could add, I mean, if you think about the United States Army in, in the United States, it's really divided up into two different groups. There's the Forces Command, which has all of the divisions and other combat units and provides trained and ready forces 
to all the combatant commanders across the world. Those are the people who get movies made about them. Yes, and then there is the tr- <laughs> is TRADOC, the Training Doctrine Command, which is what we're part of, and they provide all the doctrinal manuals, all the training, and all the individual education piece to those trained and ready forces in Forcecom. Um, so if you think about our officers who are here, um, they're going to go into a- almost every battalion, or probably every battalion and brigade in the United States Army next year. Um, so this is a huge piece that we get, the, the Army gets to uh, educate and influence them while they're part of TRADOC before they go out to Forces Command or to those overseas uh, type of units. And that's what we provide um, them in the longer term. And this also is um, their most intense um, exposure to uh, doctrine. Uh, you know, the, the idea that, that folks are sitting around in the field reading doctrinal manuals is, is just not valid. Uh, this is where they have the opportunity to do that and become conversant with, with, with current doctrine. And go back a little bit on Dave's comment earlier about how uh, we prepare them for the future. When I came through here, I was an active duty armor officer. I left here, went to a tank battalion um, as a battalion XO for a year, and then the year after that I went to a Corps headquarters, and suddenly I found myself talking to a Marine battalion, uh, getting ready to do an exercise, and doing exercising, and using this joint task list, which I had been exposed to here at CGSC, and kind of dismissing, I'll never use that, it's, it's, it's you know, outside the field of an armor guy. And yet, I'm using all these things that CGSC had prepared me for and exposed me to, and uh, that's really kind of what we do, look at it for the next 10 years in possible things they're going to do in their careers. Yeah, and that, of course, is why we have the, in your case, Marines in the classroom, so that 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 language is built across the United States and with partner organizations and countries. Um, and another point I think that you, you, you all have brought out that's important for listeners to understand is, is unlike a traditional academic institution, the, the instructors and all of the people here answer to a lot of different authorities. This is a very integrated place with a very integrated curriculum. So when we teach, we are teaching alongside faculty from the other departments and our lessons are integrated and we also answer to the Combined Arms College which is here, or excuse me, the Combined Arms Center which is here at Fort Leavenworth. That is a three-star command. And then the four-star command you mentioned, TRADOC, all the way up to the big Army Defar- Department of Defense. So for somebody who's familiar with kind of the, the, the school, um, college, university dynamic, it's very different. Um, so, so how do you find that instructors handle that uh, integration and that, that kind of difference compared to traditional academia? You bring up a very interesting point. Um, you, you know, we talk when you talk about this uh, unique command relationships and, and, and organizational relationships that we have uh, within the school, um, we, we, uh, we refer to that as a matrixed organization. We are a matrixed organization. We answer to different people for different topics. Um, and so that is, that is part of the, uh, the issue, you know, the, the way we have to navigate the shoals, if you will, of the, of the different and oftentimes conflicting and competing uh, requirements. Uh, but the, um, the, the, <clears throat> the job of the, of the Department of Military History, the, the, the administration here, and that's generally Mark and I and, and our master instructor, Dr. Sean Kalick, we, we, um, we 
try to run as much interference as we can for our faculty uh, from a lot of this, um, a lot of the administrative distractions that, 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 that abound in any large complex organization. And we're no different in that regard. Uh, there are a number of those, um, and it, 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 we see it as our job to keep those decks as clear as possible uh, so the faculty can operate. We have a remarkable faculty here in the Department of Military History, and, and we do best by just creating the space for them to do what they do best. Um, and so it's in our interest uh, to minimize the distractions and, and the, the, uh, you know, the exterior noise, if you will, um, that our faculty could become subject to. And different departments handle this in different ways, but, but we, um, we commit ourselves to doing the best we can to make sure that, that, that uh, our people do not have to deal with a lot of that extraneous stuff. Sir? Yeah, you were talking about how they fit into the teaching um, and, the, and you know, really the, the, the focus of that teaching team, mm -hmm. which is interdepartmental. So any staff group of 16 students sees five instructors throughout the, the course of the year. One of them's a historian, one's a tactics, one's uh, logistics, one's leadership, and then one's the joint multinational. But the interaction is really at that level of how we provide stuff. So for example, when our um, joint and multinational instructor is talking about the joint concept of center of gravity, uh, we've just taught a lesson or two on Napoleon and on Clausewitz and talking about the development of uh, center of gravity and how on war is and how it's different today in joint doctrine. And so that's where we help to provide them some context and some depth um, and uh, and it, it's just by those interactions at the staff group and the, and the team level that we really enhance the, uh, the education for the officers. We have another advantage too and that is that um, of all the departments in the school, we are among the best suited to be integrators of the different curricula. And, and I say that because we are a more stable faculty. Uh, we, we have fewer rotating military members. The Department of Army Tactics and the Department of Joint uh, and Multinational Interagency, uh, they have a, a, a much higher percentage of rotating military faculty, which is critical because what they do is they bring in the latest lessons learned from the field. Um, and so the Army's, our faculty stays current because of this rotating faculty. That's the upside. Uh, the other side of that is is that the rotating faculty have less of a chance uh, to become conversant in the curriculum of other departments. And so when, 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 when we talk about uh, Korea, for example, um, they may or may not have had an opportunity uh, to, to, to look at our lesson plans uh, based on their own teaching load. Uh, and, and their experience with it. So it's, it, we, we do have that continuity, that stability that allows us uh, to be uh, among the best of the integrators uh, in, in the building, uh, helping our officers understand why uh, th this, this, um, this history lesson is applicable uh, to the joint war fight, to, to the tactical war fight, or to the sustainment war fight. Um, and, and that is one of, the, one of the big strengths that DMH brings to the Command and General Staff School. You know, you know, one of the other things we have is the other four departments have to teach current doctrine. And they have to go with, this is what doctrine is. And it allows us to be the, I don't want to say the outlier, but we're able to say, is it the right doctrine? And to focus our students on the future and not just 
coming up with something, but where do you get the evidence for that? How do you look at the, the period, uh, the uh, the trends, uh, and you know this idea is how's doctrine changing? Is it the correct doctrine? Which is a lot of fun, which gives <laughs> us a, a great deal of flexibility in the classroom. Right, right, and of course you can find our DMH faculty in the classroom, um, but they are found elsewhere. So where might we find DMH faculty, kind of in the wild? <laughs> um, interesting choice of words. Um, the uh, one of the things that that um, I push, uh, I, I stress amongst our faculty is that teaching is our number one job, um, and that is another difference between us and normal academia. But but our our people teaching is our number one job, and uh, and the beauty of this department is that everyone loves to teach. But but there's also other things that they have to do for their a professional enhancement, professional development, and professional growth. So, um, we require them to to do quite a bit of um, uh, of scholarship. We we require a certain amount of faculty development, and we require a certain amount of service to the institution. Um, one of the things that that the Department of Military History does very well is outreach. We are um, very very active. Um, in <clears throat> the, the general Kansas City and beyond community uh, in terms of, uh, of, of taking the message of Army University and the Commander General Staff College to the public. Uh, we, we have uh, uh, lasting relationships and, and relationships of long standing uh, with the Kansas City Public Library where, where our uh, members of our faculty go and give uh, talks of, uh, of great interest, frequently standing room only, uh, crowds at the Kansas City Public Library. We have a long-standing uh, relationship with the Dole Institute for Politics at the University of Kansas, uh, over a decade uh, of operating there. Uh, and uh, at the Dole Institute, they, they record every, uh, every presentation. And uh, some of those uh, are, uh, are, have been the, the, uh, the subject of tens of thousands of hits. So it's, it's, it's pretty wide exposure. Uh, we also have a long-standing relationship with the uh, National World War I Museum uh, right here in downtown Kansas City, uh, which uh, uh, is, is a long-standing series of, of lectures and presentations that our faculty uh, deliver. <clears throat> uh, in addition to that, we've had a number of our, our faculty involved in, in various documentaries uh, on PBS and on the History Channel. Uh, the most recent of which is the, was the, uh, the the little mini series on on General U.S. Grant, uh, which involved three members of our faculty: uh, Dr. Ethan Rafus, uh, Dr. Gregory Hospidor, and Dr. Harry Laver. Um, all three of those uh, gentlemen participated in and, and, and were, were shown in, in the uh, in, in the documentary. So. Um, in, in a, <clears throat> that's, that's one way that we outreach. Another way is publication. This is a very widely published uh, faculty, and, and, and you can look at the, the, the publication list on our website. Uh, it's extensive. We have award-winning authors on our faculty, um, and, and, uh <clears throat> and we continue to do that. Uh, so the presentations and, and the publication are probably the, the most visible uh, uh, example of that, but there's other things. There's frequently we will get a, f a phone call from the Department of the Army that wants to know the answer to a particular historical question, um, and in almost every case, I'm able to transfer that question to the sub to a subject matter expert uh, that can not only answer the question but more than satisfy the the asker of the question, uh, and so we serve the Army in that way as well. 
uh, and we'll continue to do that. So we, we see ourself, uh, ourselves, and, and I frequently tell our faculty that um, when, when people think of the Command and General Staff College here in Kansas City, they're generally thinking of, of the Department of Military History person that gave the last presentation that they saw. Mm -hmm. Another area is, uh, is conferences, Society of Military History, Consortium of Revolutionary Europe, uh, Northern Great Plains, um, whatever area of interest, uh, people presenting papers uh, in there. And then the last area would be on research trips, uh, National Archives, uh, uh, overseas, uh, the, uh, various uh, different archives. Uh, despite the fact that teaching is our number one uh, priority um, and we don't really have the, uh, the, the blocked off time for writing, uh, we do do a lot of publications. and. Uh, our faculty use summer break or the uh, spring break here to go off and do research uh, to be able to maintain their currency in the field and to, to publish uh, books and articles. All right, so what would you say to maybe an aspiring historian who is interested in the department, who's interested perhaps in working for the department, but who might be confused by all of these acronyms and <laughs> matrixed organizations within the Army? Um, what I'd say is, um, if you are a young, aspiring historian and you want to contribute, um, and military historian, and you want to contribute to the body of knowledge, you want to contribute to your own professional growth, and you want to make a significant contribution to the United States by helping educate military, mid-grade military officers who are going to see senior service. Many of these officers here are going to be general officers. Um, I, I would argue that you cannot be a general officer unless you go through here or through a, a, a sister school of, of equivalent level, yeah. And the, um, the, 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 the acronyms, et cetera, um, that, that, that is all stuff we can, we can, uh, we can get past. Um, what we want is people uh, that, are, that are eager um, and, and want to focus on teaching and, and love their, their, the, the craft of military history. Yeah. Positions here are advertised through USA Jobs. Um, uh, the minimum requirement is a master's degree uh, with getting a PhD, but most, be, just because of the quality of our applicants, most have uh, a terminal degree already, have a, uh, a record of publications, and they also have a record of teaching uh, in the field. So get those things, improve your CV. And then the other thing I would recommend is when you go to a conference and you see someone from the Department of Military History, ask them about working here. What are the conditions like? What is a Title X? Because we do have what's known as Title X employees. It's slightly different than GS, but um, uh, seek them out at these conferences and really pick their brains about uh, the environment and teaching here. And I can attest to that because that's how I got hired here. <laughs> I asked somebody at a conference. Gentlemen, thank you for being with us. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, and, and I would I would also add to, to any aspiring historian that wants to come here is um, I, I challenge you to find a better hallway to work on. This is a very collegial hallway. Uh, we trade information and best practices back and forth very uh, very unselfishly. Uh, it's a very different environment that, that most of us enjoy very much. Absolutely, I concur. Yeah. All right, thank you very much. Thank you.